In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, dear faithful, uh, last week we were talking about the letter from our Superior General regarding how the situation in our church, in the Catholic Church, and also in the world, uh, leaves us only with the option to become more conformable to our Lord Jesus Christ and conformable to him, especially in sacrifice. We can't really depend on the church anymore to direct us in this way because the church seems to be moving in the uh, direct direction of the globalist world. And I don't think we can rely on governments to lead us in this direction anymore because anyone who's making an effort in this direction is being crushed by other powers more powerful than those governments. So uh, that is why our superior general insisted that now is the time to become conformable, conformable to the image of our Lord, especially in sacrifice. Some of the uh, issues which he stressed, the way in which we have to keep the flame, keep the torch of the faith alive, is by fighting uh, against the world. And he said, uh, that is what we do, and that's what Catholics always must do. They must have a struggle against the world. Uh, if we're not struggling against the world, then we're not doing our job as Catholics. So uh, he says that from the very beginning, it's always been a temptation to be more friendly with the world than with our Lord Jesus Christ. And he would cite uh, the apostles on the night of Holy Thursday as already, gi already giving into this weakness, looking for something more comfortable than following our Lord Jesus Christ. And their way was to fall asleep on him. But ever since then, we've seen many different ways in which the followers of our Lord have become too comfortable and too much a friend of the world. And he says, when that happens, and when there's no more struggle between those of the church and the world, well, then they have lost the mission of the Catholic Church. Uh, about 100 and 50 years ago, you might have heard of the Republic of Ecuador, where the president consecrated the country to uh, the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And uh, there was a huge preparation to get up to that point. Everyone was going to church. Everyone was doing their best to follow the Ten Commandments. Everybody was making holy hours. Everyone was going to confession. And as a culmination and a climax of that very Christian behavior, they consecrated the whole country in, with all the bishops of the country uh, to the um, Sacred Heart of Jesus in the year 1872, if I'm not mistaken on the number. Uh, within two years, just two years after that, that very president was assassinated. Um, and that was directed by an international plot uh, to put that man to death because he was supporting Pope Pius IX uh, in the loss of the papal states. But there's an example how people were struggling against the world in order to build up the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even with the assassination of the president, and this is important, it's very important that we get that into our minds. And I'm talking about a president from 150 years ago. I know the word president is kind of only meaning one person these days. But 
that assassination is also the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to think supernaturally. It's a struggle against the world, and even if there are these big human failures, what we might consider big human failures, our Lord is still winning. You might have heard from the sermon that Father Summers has been preaching at the other Masses today, uh, the crucifixion of our Lord, Jesus Christ, humanly, is the greatest failure of all history, humanly. He's the wonder worker, he's the greatest preacher, he's the one who gave the doctrine of God the Father to our souls, and they crucified him. Well, we can even say we crucified him by our own sins, and we crucified him. The greatest human failure of all time. But thanks to that human failure, that was the greatest supernatural victory. He put an end to the kingdom of Satan once and for all on the cross. It's been 2,000 years, years of life since then where we might see that, no, it looks like the devil still has power. No, he doesn't. Every time the Mass is offered, our Lord is crushing him again and crushing him again and crushing him again. So what appears humanly is not completely what's going on supernaturally. And that's the struggle we must be involved with. And if we leave that struggle, we've lost the practice of the Catholic faith. So some different areas in, where, in which our superior generals tells us we should practice this struggle. First of all, the battle for the priesthood. The battle for the priesthood. Uh, when I was a little boy, we went to the traditional Mass, and we had a, had a priest who offered the Mass for, uh, for our group, and he must have been at least 60 years old, probably older than that. And I saw there were younger doctors, and there were younger uh, contractors, you know, carpenters, and there were younger teachers, and all kinds of things, and that was kind of a mystery to me. Why does a priest have to be so old? Well, the answer was about two or three generations had passed by, without people responding to vocations by that time, and that's why the priests had to be so old. And another reason was that priests were no longer offering the traditional Mass. They were very, very few, few and far between, as it still is, 40 years later or more. Uh, and uh, uh, they weren't offering the traditional Mass. They weren't offering, they were not focusing on the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ anymore. So yes, there was a huge generation gap from a priest who still believed in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ to a youngster, less than 10 years old, trying to find the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. I had thoughts of, well, who's going to replace this priest someday? And if the church is such a central part of our family, you know, we don't open up our presents for Christmas until we've gone to church first, uh, we don't have any great celebration without also going to church. Uh, if the church is such a central part of our family, and that priest is more than 60 years old, probably more like 70, uh, something's got to give here. You know, something's been missed for several generation, generations, and somebody's got to fill that gap in. So already, as a youngster, maybe youngsters can see this, the priesthood is very important. And we have to follow that voice of the Holy Ghost that puts those kind of thoughts into people's minds and also their hearts to respond to a vocation, the battle for the priesthood.
If there is no priesthood, there'll be no mass. If there is no priesthood, there'll be no sacrifice. If there's no priesthood, there'll be no faith. Because the only way that you're going to keep the supernatural life alive in your family is if you receive the sacraments and also if you assist at Holy Mass. But if there's no priest offering that sacrifice, and I mean sacrifice, not just some sort of a Eucharistic celebration that doesn't even want to be called the Mass anymore. I mean the sacrifice. If that's not going on anymore, then there's no more supernatural life coming into souls. It depends on the priest and the priesthood. We're in the battle for the priesthood. That's the struggle we're, we're waging. We're also in the battle for the Holy Mass, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. From the testimonies that I've heard of, uh, people who have now passed on to their eternal reward, uh, these people who were in their youth in the 1940s and 50s, uh, they said it was the most common thing to have the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. In cities, there were churches at least once every three or four blocks, if not once every block. And those people were having novenas and masses on Sunday morning from six o'clock in the morning till about one o'clock in the afternoon. Every half hour, because they, well, maybe not every, but every half hour because they had a mass on the upper level and a mass on the lower level. And that way they could get through about 12 masses or whatever it is, 12 masses on a Sunday morning because that was necessary. It's amazing. And it was so normal and so common that they never believed that someone could take that away from them. And so when the holy sacrifice of the Mass disappeared, and in a certain way that statement is true, when the holy sacrifice of the Mass disappeared, they were completely, uh, uh, they had lost their moorings. They had no connection anymore to the faith because the Mass was gone. We need to have a battle to keep the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And thanks to, thanks be to God, thanks to the work of Archbishop Mar Marcel Lefebvre, we still have 600 priests at least celebrating the holy sacrifice of the Mass who had nothing to do with the destroyers of the Mass. That was the generation before them. They might not even have ever seen a traditional Mass before it was taken away from them, but those are the ones preserving it, and that is the work of the Holy Ghost. My mother told me a story yesterday morning. Uh, she was making her first Holy Communion, and the year was 1939. She must have been about a six-year-old girl. So in the year 1939, uh, they had the whole class together, which must be at least 50 girls or more, uh, for their Mass of First Holy Communion. And the priest was an American, but a lot of the American priests had come over from Ireland. That was back in the days when if you were ordained in Ireland, you can kiss your country, uh, country goodbye because there's so many priests packing Ireland, there's no space to employ them anymore. So off to the United States, off to the missions, off to Canada, but bye-bye, Irish priest. Back in those days, my mother was making her first Holy Communion, and the name of the priest was Father Foley. 
uh, he spoke like an Irishman and he said, now be, be aware, girls. I mean, it was boys and girls because it was still mixed at those lower ages. Uh, someday they will take away the moss from you. you know, he's an Irishman, he would talk that way. They will take away the moss from you. Now, what is that doing at a First Holy Communion sermon? Uh, that's the day to talk about the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's the, way to, the day to talk about the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the day to talk about you children, when you come up here to First Holy Communion, your prayers are so important to our Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to give you whatever you ask for today. You know, those are normal First Communion sentiments. But here in the year 1939, you have a priest telling these little six-year-old children, they're going to take the Mass away from you someday. You know that, don't you? Where'd that come from? That's uh, 20 years before Vatican II. And he knew that was going to happen, and he was right. There must have been a spirit in the church already to say, enough of sacrifice, enough of uh, all this reverence at Mass, enough of uh, communion rails and altars that don't face the people. That nonsense must have been already going around. It's more than nonsense. That, that uh, enemyship, uh, uh, enmity against our Lord Jesus Christ must have already been going around. Going around. Uh, and my mother says that from that day she was prepared to lose the holy sacrifice of the Mass, which eventually became the reality about uh, 25 years later. Uh, it is a battle to conserve the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And as I was telling you last week, and this comes from the newsletter as well, uh, it's not just about a more pious congregation. It's not just about a liturgy which is more uplifting. It is about true adoration to God the Father through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ and through the uh, total gift of ourselves at the holy sacrifice of the Mass. That's what this is all about here. That's why you come to a smaller church. That's why you come to a church that can't even advertise itself out on the front street. That's why people accuse you of going to a sect. Uh, all these different uh, little marginalizations that you all go through is because you believe in that. The Mass is about adoring God. It's not about focusing on my neighbor and the dignity of man and the rights of man. And how am I going to show this adoration of God in the best way? I am going to offer myself completely with him while he sacrifices himself to his father. That's the Mass, which has been taken away from us 60 years ago. Yeah, 60 years ago. Somehow allowed to survive in little pockets, but universally it has been taken away from us. And it is a battle for the Mass. Battle for the priesthood and battle for the Mass. These, this is the flame that we wish to keep alive uh, in this um, struggle against the world, which we must do. And then we have the battle for doctrine, which is opposed to having the battle for the rights of man. How will I explain that? There are children today growing up without catechism. They don't learn that at Holy Mass you receive 
the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. They don't learn how to kneel down. They don't learn how to fast and to abstain from meat. They don't learn how to uh, practice some kind of sacrifice and some kind of doing without in order that you can follow the Ten Commandments. So what are we doing? We are raising up the next generation of apostates, people that will hate Jesus Christ. If not in word, they will hate him in their actions. That's what's being done by not having catechism. We have a war for the doctrine. We need to bring that doctrine back by telling children that there are saints and those people have become saints because they follow the Ten Commandments at every cost to themselves, physical and spiritual. But our Lord Jesus Christ and the Blessed Virgin Mary have maintained them in the faith by giving them Holy Communion and Confession, the Rosary, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, and a huge amount of merit so that they might have a life of sacrifice in their own soul. That's what we teach the children here in this small, very, very small pocket of Christianity. But generally, the children are learning what I just told you about. And even if they did learn outside of here, even if they did learn uh, Ten Commandments and Seven Sacraments and Seven Days of Creation, I don't know what all, uh, there is still a spirit there called the relativization of truth. Where you can believe everything about the commandments and the mass and even transubstantiation. And at the end of the day, they say, that is all beautiful. I am so inspired by that. And I'm so glad you see things in that way. And if I don't see them in that way, that's all right too. Because uh, God appreciates whatever we decide to believe about him. That's called relativization of truth. And that is the essence and the heart of modernism, where you can put all the truths of our Lord Jesus Christ on one side, and you can put all the attacks against the truths of our Lord Jesus Christ on the other side, and you can say, it all synchronizes, it all corresponds, as long as you have goodwill on either side. So that's what's happened to doctrine. And we've got a struggle We've got to struggle to make sure that doctrine survives and that even after all the memorization of the catechism, we still say, and that is the only truth. Anything that goes against that is from the devil that is condemned by our Lord Jesus Christ. And people who practice those things will go to hell. Hell which still exists. And it's not just some sort of figment of my imagination, which I believe in, but if you don't believe in it, well, then it doesn't exist. No, no, no. <laughs> there are realities which exist outside of ourselves. If we believe in them, magnificent. If we don't believe in them, too bad. They still exist. It is a struggle for doctrine, which our Lord Jesus Christ said, the doctrine which I give you is not mine, or my doctrine is not mine. It comes from my Father. Even he himself admits that his stuff is bigger and better than the rest of us. We all have to submit to it. Doctrine. It is a struggle for the priesthood, 
a struggle for the Mass, a struggle for doctrine, and finally, a struggle for Christ the King. If you allow me to go back to that same president from Ecuador back in the 19th century, uh, he belongs to a long tradition of a, um, a Christ the King state, which had begun already uh, 200 years before him, with certain apparitions from Our Lady of Buen Suceso, Suceso to um, Madre Mariana. Our Lady told this Mother Superior that in 200 years' time, that would be the 19th century, sorry, in 300 years' time, which would be the 20th century, she said, uh, bishops will no longer insist on catechism. That bishops will no longer rebuke lapsed Catholics. Bishops will not speak out against laicized governments. A laicized government is any state where Jesus Christ does not have rights anymore. So any kind of laws that come out which are obviously against the Catholic Church or obviously against Christianity, that's a laicized state. And Our Lady prophesied this 300, 300 years before that bishops will not speak out against laicized governments anymore. And then what would be the reality of bishops no longer insisting on, on these things? What would be the practice of families? There would be many unwed couples. So a man and wife would be living in the same house without any marriage. I think this, happened, this is happening all over the place. Uh, Father Summers was just telling me, telling me about this uh, in some of the countries which are part of this district where it's quite a common thing, even amongst what we would call what we would call good people. For some reason, they've never committed to get them, getting themselves married and married by the church, and they've got an um, indifferent and pagan situation going on in their house, even though their children might go to church. It's a big kind of confusion, a big confusion. But many unwed couples would happen. And then as a result of that, there would be many unbaptized children. You know, the... Two people come to the church to baptize their child, and the priest says, okay, um, oh, I see you're not married by the church. What assurance do I have that this child is going to, be, going to be raised in the Catholic faith? Are you going to get married? And the answer a lot of times is, well, no, we're not going to do that. And the priest says, well, I'd love to help you. I want this church to go to heaven as bad as you do. But if I baptize him and send him home to a house of adultery, I'll repeat that, a house of adultery, I will not let coughs take away the vocabulary of the sermon. <laughs> uh, if I'm going to send a child back to a house of adultery, what kind of Catholicism is he going to get? You know? And um, uh, there's going to be paganism in the home. Many unbaptized children. Then if you've got an unbaptized child in the house, well, what trouble are you going to make to make sure that he... Uh, trouble you're going to take to make sure that he gets catechism. You know, he's already starting off on the wrong foot. Why should I give him catechism if the priest hasn't even baptized him for me? So you just end up with this huge uh, pagan state. At best, you have um, neutral people that say, well, Christianity is still good, even though we don't practice it. And the Church of Jesus becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. 
And that is a problem of not fighting for Christ the King. That is a problem of not struggling against the world. So, um, you know, pray for this situation. If I'm not mistaken, um, uh, well, uh, to put it into very uh, present-day terms, you might see people who are really fighting for the reign of Christ the King, but you're finding people with power of this world above them fighting harder to make, no, fighting hard also, I should say, to crush them, you see. You might find people, good people, even powerful people, fighting for the reign of Christ the King, but being crushed by other people above them who apparently have more power. It's really an unfortunate thing. Uh, but I just want to go back to what we said earlier. Our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross is the biggest failure of all history. But if there have been 2,000 years of Christianity and grace and sanctification and saints and martyrs and glory of God, it has all come from that cross. Even before our Lord Jesus Christ, all grace goes to souls because of his cross. So if we're going to see the cross um, continue, continue to sort of materialize and surface, that is not the end of the world. And it's certainly not the end of the struggle. It might be an essential part of the struggle. Embrace that cross. It is Christ the King. Our Lord Jesus Christ wears a crown of thorns. He reigns over souls by that crown of thorns. Embrace the cross. Embrace the crown of thorns with our Lord Jesus Christ. He is king through those elements. So that, my faithful, is the struggle. The struggle against the world and the struggle against worldliness. We must have a battle for the priesthood, for the Holy Mass, for doctrine, and for Christ the King. And if that is going on amongst us and inside of us and around us, even despite whatever failures we, we see and that we lament, um, our Lord Jesus Christ and our Blessed Mother are still in charge of what's going on. We might see the biggest failure possible with all kinds of injustice and all kind of um, uh, unfair treatment. It just seems like only the devil is allowed to reign. Uh, don't worry. It's part of the cross, too. And we are meant to embrace it. And by our embracing of that cross, we are participating in the struggle against the world, which is the greatest service that we can possibly pay our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.